It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Previously on Fox News Rewind, 9-11. Afghanistan, beautiful but some claim under its hardline Taliban regime, barbaric. There was no debate about al-Qaeda. Then not a word came up in any of the Gore-Bush debates. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Those who are watching on television, your government failed you. Afghanistan is not lost, but for several years it has moved backwards. There's no imminent threat of the government being overthrown, but the Taliban has gained momentum. For the first time in in 10 years, we finally had some breakthrough information on where bin Laden could possibly be located. He said, yeah, you just killed Osama bin Laden, your life just changed, now let's get to work. We continued to be nervous until the helicopters finally got back and landed in Jalalabad, uh, and we knew that the mission had been completed. Episode 7, Epilogue. It's the compound which Bin Laden called home for maybe up to six years in the town of Abbottabad, also home to a Pakistani military academy and army base. Pakistani officials claim they didn't know where Bin Laden was and that they weren't involved in the mission. That message is playing well with some of the locals here, still clearly in the thrall of Bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda ideology. Because he also had a lot of sympathy. And I think there's a lot of sympathy for him here. Whether it's here or not, but I think in the Islamic world there was. I'm sad for him. You're sad for him? He was a good Muslim. Yeah. But the things that they say he did, uh, the terror acts? Uh, This is what you guys think. Others disagree, saying getting rid of a person who has helped to get rid of a lot of Pakistanis through terror might not be so bad. The people of the whole region, but I can say the whole world, are uh, they have a sea of relief. Relief. Yes. For all of those years that we imagined him in a a, a cave of a cave of a cave, you know, up in some uh, uh, mountain lair, to find him there, literally uh, an hour and a half drive up from Islamabad, which is, uh, you know, one of the large cities of, uh, of Pakistan, uh, which where we flew in from. It was it was too strange. Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent Greg Palcott. Pretty nice house he had. Pretty large house, a villa with with uh, uh, large walls around a, a pretty large uh, piece of ground in a, a neighborhood that was also quite well to do by by Pakistan standards. Uh, to go there, to go up against the wall, to see where one of the helicopters that the U.S. military used to, to scoop in and, and actually had hit and, and, and actually had an incident on was, 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 was amazing. To look up at the top floor where he was hiding out, where the uh, U.S. Uh, the, the, the special force commandos had to had to climb those stairs and, and to go for them was astounding. And to look at the neighborhood and, and look at the people there who either knew he was there or didn't know he was there. And all of this was going on again. Uh, like the town next to West Point, maybe, because, yeah, there was a massive uh, military school right there with huge numbers of Pakistani uh, uh, military officials. We have decided that uh, that in, in order to prevent bin Laden's a burial site from becoming a shrine, that uh, we would bury bin Laden at sea. Former White House Chief of Staff, CIA Director and Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. And so the body was taken from Jalalabad uh, to a uh, carrier off of the, uh, uh, the coast there. Uh, and uh, he was given uh, a, a burial under Muslim law. President Obama said afterward, I was never 
100% convinced that Osama bin Laden was there. Former member of SEAL Team 6, Rob O'Neill. But I was convinced you guys could go in, find out, and come back. We were, to some extent, as a nation, you could argue victims of success. Fox News senior political analyst, Britt Hume. Because we all thought that we were in for probably a series of these attacks over many years. And while there have been things that have happened in attacks, the worst ones have not been in the United States. They've been overseas. They've been in places like France and Britain and places like that. Um, We have largely, as a nation, been spared. So the sense of urgency that gripped us in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 subsided over time. Bin Laden has been the leader of al-Qaeda essentially since its inception. Um, In that particular context, he had a peculiar charisma uh, that I think, as I hear, he does not have. I wasn't, uh, you know, impressed with Zawahiri's leadership. Former FBI Supervisory Special Agent Ali Sufan. I thought Zawahiri will break the organization. And I think I was, you know, right to believe that because remember ISIS was Al-Qaeda part of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and it broke down, you know, it, it separated from Ayman Zawahiri and Ayman Zawahiri's leadership. France is under attack. Those were the words of French President Emmanuel Macron following the third attack in two months blamed on Islamic extremists. It happened in the city of Nice, a man armed with a knife killing three people in a church before being shot and apprehended by police. Officials say the investigation is ramping up, but they're clear it was a terror attack. ISIS came about really as a result of a perfect storm. Fox News foreign affairs correspondent Benjamin Hall. You had the Syrian civil war on one hand, a country that was in complete turmoil. The Assad regime was bombing indiscriminately around the country, and there were pockets of resistance that were doing everything they could to fight back. And in that context, some of these jihadi movements were able to rise up uh, and get a lot of public and popular support against them. At the same time, you had what was happening across the border in Iraq. Uh, And there are two ways of thinking about this. One is that had the US never gone in originally, then Saddam would have stayed in place. um, And perhaps you would not have ended up with the chaos that ensued. But the other way of thinking, and the one to which I personally tend to lead, is that the US had al-Qaeda on the back foot in 2007. You had al-Qaeda in Iraq, who was the last little pocket of resistance down in the southwest. And after the Bush uh, surge of 2007, they were on the run. President Obama came into office. He pulled out far more quickly. And as a result, that pocket of resistance was able to survive. And from al-Qaeda in Iraq, you got al-Qaeda in Syria, and they spread into ISIS. And it was the leaders of al-Qaeda in Iraq who then morphed into the Islamic State in Iraq, who fled across the border. Today, I can report that, as promised, the rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. After nearly nine years, America's war in Iraq will be over. ISIS um, ended up being kind of a mix of, I would say, People who'd been radicalized either in prison. Fox News Channel correspondent Amy Kellogg. Or even, you know, Saddam Hussein had been the lid on fundamentalism in Iraq. And when he was gone, some of these people who had been slowly percolating, um, maybe in that direction, had free reign. It was dangerous. The stakes were high. But these guys under ISIS kind of joined forces with the Ba'athist officers, Saddam's majors and fighters and generals from his army who the U.S. had had not invited into the fold. They had been sidelined and they were looking for a way to get back into power. So they they rode on ISIS's coattails and ISIS took advantage of their military chops. ISIS somehow also came up with a pretty good propaganda machine and um, and it was sleek and it was attractive to a, a range of people, some of them just vulnerable probably to brainwashing others maybe hardened jihadists maybe others lost youth whatever it was they um you know they they became quite a force and also what you had going on was the sort of marginalization of sunni populations in both syria and iraq let me now say a word about what we should not do we should not be drawn once more into a long and costly ground war in Iraq or Syria. 
That's what groups like ISIL want. ISIS was just far more brutal than any other terrorist group we've seen. They really espouse this medieval sense of uh, uh, brutality and torture and subjugation of those against them. And so you had this group which was just able to take advantage, as I said, of the Syrian civil war at the right time, at the right place, and build this entire caliphate, almost untouched at first. According to the United Nations, ISIS is systematically killing, torturing, and raping children and families. The world governing body says there have also been a number of cases of mass executions of boys, as well as reports of beheadings, crucifixions, and burying children alive. The militant group is also reportedly selling children off to the highest bidder. Children of minorities have been captured, sold in the marketplace with uh, uh, taps, uh, price tags on them, uh, have been sold as slaves. A number of other children spared from death and slavery are being trained to join the ISIS army. What we saw initially were some t attacks launched abroad, not by people who had been trained by ISIS in Syria and Iraq, but people who were inspired by them. And all this... It has to be put into the framework of ISIS's incredible propaganda. They pumped the stuff out online, and they were able to get followers in all parts of the world who were encouraged using chats, uh, encrypted chat, uh, various different websites, to go out and commit these crimes, to make videos, and then go out on these lone wolf attacks. The formula was generally, and quite often, get a car, mow down some people in a western city and then jump out with either a knife or a gun if you could get hold of one and they, these attacks tended to kill you if you were if they were lucky 10 people but they'd make big propaganda cases out of them but what happened was that they then started to get more organized and isis actually launched its first trained attack in paris flowers and candles are replacing gunfire and explosions in paris that's following the deadliest attack in the french capital since world war ii French President François Hollande says ISIS is behind the sophisticated and coordinated assault. This was an act of war that was prepared, organized, planned from the exterior, and with internal accomplices that our investigation will establish. There were 11 terrorists involved. They were mostly French and Belgian, Belgian nationals. It, they claim that it was a retaliation for French airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. They first hit a, a suicide bomber, didn't manage to get into the Stade de France at the French National Stadium, but blew himself up outside. And then in this coordinated activity, there were a bunch of um, a bunch of them spread out to different restaurants and bars. It was a Friday evening. And, um, and so it was dinner time, party time, and they just went on shootings. One bomber blew himself up at a restaurant. And then the most bloody part of the whole spree was at the Bataclan Theater where 89 were killed. One of the most wanted men in the world. His name is Salah Abdeslam. French police say the 26-year-old rented the Volkswagen that carried terrorists to the Bataclan concert hall. That's where nearly 90 innocent people were murdered Friday night. One survivor of the mass executions says she's still shivering and just starting to realize what she went through. My main thought was just get out, just get out, get out, get out. And I don't think I actually realized that this was, you didn't know then what it was. You know, it was gunshots and you had to get out. But it's only afterwards that we realized it was a real terrorist attack. It was really, it was just such a huge uh, coordinated attack across the city. And the fear factor for people who weren't caught up was quite in intense, too, because with so many terrorists on the loose, uh, nobody knew whether they could head home from wherever they might have been on that night, whether you were at a friend's house or in a bar. You didn't know where safety was to be had. So it was um, it was really it was a really horrible thing. And of course, Paris and France generally has not been very lucky in this whole period. There have been a lot of terrorist attacks in France, and um, uh, but this, but this was the biggest. Paris is still a city on edge. A false alarm during a gathering at the Place de la République sent crowds scurrying for cover. The panic may have been set off by a firecracker. The Associated Press is reporting that Iraqi intelligence forces warned France and other coalition nations that an attack was imminent. According to the AP, the dispatch says the attacks were ordered by ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And then, of course, don't forget, they went and started killing journalists. You had you know, Jim Foley, you had Stephen Sotlov, you had uh, Peter Kasich. 
All these names who were not only captured and killed, but they were done so in brutal fashion, on their knees in the desert in orange jumpsuits. Now, Jim Foley's life stands in stark contrast to his killers. Let's be clear about ISIL. They have rampaged across cities and villages, killing innocent, unarmed civilians in cowardly acts of violence. They abduct women and children and subject them to torture and rape and slavery. They've murdered Muslims, both Sunni and Shia, by the thousands. Those images, combined with the terror attacks, got the West to pay real attention um, and in some regards led to the downfall of ISIS because the world paid attention. The world said this has to be stopped as soon as possible. U.S. military airstrikes still playing a key role in supporting the anti-ISIS coalition as U.S.-backed Syrian Kurds and Arab forces move closer to retaking Raqqa, the self-proclaimed ISIS capital. There are a lot of different groups that were fighting ISIS. To be honest, as soon as they got reached the size that they were, when they had taken over Mosul in Iraq, which is Iraq's second city, and they had such large territory and they were taking in such taxation, a lot of groups realized that they needed to be countered. On the ground, you had the Kurds, mainly Kurds, along with some Arab groups, who are the ones who effectively did all the fighting on the ground. And then in the air, you had the coalition led by the US, who did all of the heavy lifting on their behalf with intelligence, air support, as well as providing weaponry. But where the turning point came was when President Trump came to office and he made it very clear that you needed to take the gloves off against ISIS. Up till then, Obama had been fighting them. Uh, he suddenly had been supporting um, the operation to remove them, but it had been going very slowly. They had dug into these big cities and just going street by street was going to take years, if at all, be successful. President Trump went in there and he said, let's take the gloves off. After more than 30,000 airstrikes in three years and U.S.-backed operations to recapture big cities in Iraq and Syria, ISIS no longer controls any significant territory in the Mideast. And a Pentagon spokesman tells us less than 3,000 ISIS fighters remain. They went in in a big way. We were often at the front lines when we saw some of this big American air power come in, uh, and they were able to push ISIS back quickly. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration. U.S. Special Operations Forces executed a dangerous and daring nighttime raid in northwestern Syria and accomplished their mission in grand style. At the same time, the U.S. became very adept at shutting off their streams of financing. Uh, both the NSA, the CIA and the FBI domestically is watching very closely to see how the money is filtered to them. It was one of the key efforts that led to their demise and which is still underway constantly at the moment. We see the impact of September the 11th every day today. Co-host of Fox and Friends on the Fox News Channel, Steve Ducey. I mean, if you're flying on an airplane, you know how uncomfortable it is to submit yourself to those inspections, which are very intrusive, but, you know, they, they say we need to do it to make sure that we all get wherever we're flying to. I, I think ultimately people are more wary about what other people in other countries can possibly do to the United States. And uh, every day now people wake up wondering, is this going to be a good day or is this going to be a bad day? Because I remember the bad day. And to this day, when I see days like that, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. Because I, I worry, you know, it's almost, I don't know if it's fair to say I have PTSD, but it's something that I note. And days that are that pretty kind of scare me, frankly, because it reminds me a lot of 9-11. I think the United States has changed in three fundamental ways as a result of 9-11. Co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. 
Amy Zegert. The first is that our national sense of innocence and invulnerability have been forever altered by that day. Our power and our geography no longer protect us as we once thought they did. The second is that our national unity has really changed dramatically. I so vividly remember right after 9-11, Democratic and Republican lawmakers standing arm in arm in front of the Capitol, vowing to work together to protect this country. And yet here we are 20 years later, and that unity has really unraveled. And we're facing a more polarized national uh, environment and national political moment than we've ever faced before. I think the third change since 9-11 is a positive change, and that is that the intelligence community is working much better together as a unified whole than it did before September 11th. We now have 18 agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, and while there is still an urgent need for reform and continued improvement, their coordination and collaboration is much better today than it was on September 10th. You know, it remains true, as it's always been true, that people who don't care what happens to themselves can do a lot of damage. And no matter what maximal precautions you you put on it, um, you can you can thwart people who have to do a lot of logistical planning in order to carry out a big, spectacular attack. Former Assistant United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Andrew McCarthy. So in that sense, we're a lot uh, I, I think we're a lot safer from that kind of attack than we were in the 1990s. Our communication and cooperation and intelligence sharing between all the different uh, arms of our intelligence community and between uh, local police and the FBI and local police are the biggest force multiplier uh, in counterterrorism because there's more of them and they they have the best sources on the ground so i i think in in terms of our in terms of how we're structured the information flow is night and day better today than it was in the early 1990s between uh police organizations feeding information to the fbi and the fbi sharing information with the other intelligence agencies that handle international uh intelligence and the cia uh, reciprocally um, making sure the FBI is aware of developments outside the United States. We certainly aren't currently safe from terrorism. Former United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Mary Jo White. The biggest mistake we can make, certainly with um, the Islamic terrorists we've been talking about and are responsible for 9-11, the Trade Center bombing and so many other cases, uh, their M.O., uh, is to wait and to plot for years the next significant act of terrorism. I mean, I think one of the things that may have helped us so far, uh, first, we beefed up security tremendously in the country, airline uh, security, airport security, and other security, uh, and that's helpful in terms of deterrence. But Al-Qaeda also has... Um, a penchant for wanting to one-up themselves. So you think about something even more serious than 9-11, and not only is that obviously you know, frightening beyond frightening, uh, it also takes a lot to carry it out uh, once you have enhanced the security and the intelligence as we have in the United States and around the world. But the biggest mistake we could make is to be complacent that because we haven't had a major attack in the United States since 9-11, uh, that we won't have one. Today, Al-Qaeda is in Yemen. Al-Qaeda is in Syria. Al-Qaeda is in Somalia. Al-Qaeda is in a Sahel region. Al-Qaeda is in Southeast Asia. Uh, remember, before 9-11, Al-Qaeda was just in Kandahar, which is a couple of safe houses in Yemen. Um, now, they have thousands of people who adhere to the ideology and to the narrative of Osama bin Laden. Their focus is more local than global for the time being. But um, I think um, we should keep our eyes on the ball. It's something that we do need to be working against. AEI fellow and advisor to Critical Threats Project, Catherine Zimmerman. Because, you know, we certainly do not want to leave open the door uh, for the possibility of another mass casualty attack like 9-11. Uh, and I would say the risk for that in this post-9-11 world is, is rising again, uh, simply because we've had to prioritize other threats 
other national security threats to the United States, um, but also uh, because Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and those groups, they would like the U.S. and the West to leave the Muslim world. Um, and so the disengagement that we are watching today, um, both from the United States and from European allies in places in Africa, the Middle East, Afghanistan, is troublesome because it's turning that terrain back over to the terrorists um, and I think might create problems for us in the long term. I don't think any nation will ever be safe from terrorism. Former commander of the USS Cole, Kirk Lippold. It is still viewed as a very effective tool when it can be allowed to happen. Our job is to try and do everything we can not to allow it to get to that point. I mean, it's like a suicide attack. Even today, no one can stop a dedicated suicide bomber or attacker from carrying out that terrorist attack. President Bush would say it. We have to be right every time. They only have to be right once. Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace. So we can foil 99 uh, terrorist plots. And I think this country uh, should take great pride in, in, in our apparatus after 9-11, uh, the, the, the sharing of intelligence, the infiltration of groups. How many times do we hear about a, a group of terrorists being taken down because the FBI had infiltrated somebody into the group? You know, we should take great pride in that. But the idea that, that some twisted people may someday be able to do something again, maybe not on the scale of 9-11, but to still create tremendous damage and kill a lot of people. Uh, that's part of living in the world in the 21st century, and there are no guarantees. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The power to affect a military battlefield by the U.S. is unsurpassed. Chief political anchor and anchor and executive editor of Special Report on the Fox News Channel, Brett Baer. We, we have the ability to do anything in a military battlefield. What we don't have the ability to do is without the backing and the wish of the government that is on the ground uh, to rise up itself and to provide its own defense, the U.S. can't force that. And in fact, by the U.S. being there, it forces this other presence uh, to continue attacks on on uh, what, the, what the U.S. goal is. So uh, standing up governments uh, is a very tough thing to do. Fighting a battlefield and winning a battle um, is, is much easier. Because of the extraordinary service of the men and women uh, in the American armed, uh, armed Forces, Afghanistan has a chance to rebuild its own country. Uh, we are safer. It's not going to be a, a source of terrorist attacks again. I have plans on Afghanistan that if I wanted to win that war, Afghanistan would be wiped off the face of the earth. It would be gone. It would be over in literally in 10 days. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to go that route. So we're working with Pakistan and others to extricate ourselves, nor do we want to be policemen, because basically we're policemen right now. And we're not supposed to be policemen. We've been there we've been there for 19 years in Afghanistan. It's ridiculous. A breakthrough in peace talks between the Taliban and U.S. officials after six days of intense meetings in Qatar. The discussions appear to have ended with a framework for the international coalition to withdraw from Afghanistan. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. When I came to office, I inherited a diplomatic agreement duly negotiated between the government of the United States and the Taliban that all U.S. forces would be out of Afghanistan by May 1, 2021, just three months after my inauguration. That's what we inherited, that commitment. It's perhaps not what I would have negotiated myself, but it was an agreement made by the United States government. And that means something. 
The amount of fighting that's being done by our forces in Afghanistan now is minimal. Brit Hume. The casualty rate among American forces has shrunk dramatically. Um, and if you're arguing that we shouldn't be anywhere where um, where there's going to be fighting, then what's the point of having a fighting force? We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately, and safely. And we will do it in full coordination with our allies and partners who now have more forces in Afghanistan than we do. And the Taliban should know that if they attack us as we draw down, we will defend ourselves and our partners with all the tools at our disposal. Our allies and partners have stood beside us shoulder to shoulder in Afghanistan for almost 20 years. And we're deeply grateful for the contributions they have made to our shared mission and for the sacrifices they've borne. The plan has long been in together, out together. U.S. troops, as well as forces deployed by our NATO allies and operational partners, will be out of Afghanistan before we mark the 20th anniversary of that heinous attack on September 11th. The Taliban is on the move. Since the U.S. pulled out most of its troops from Afghanistan, the militants have been taking more and more of the country. And that's got people who worked with the U.S. worried. They fear they will be targeted if the Taliban takes over. I believe that as soon as they are here, they will chase the people like me um, who used to work or who are currently working for the U.S. government. Two days before Kabul fell to the Taliban, John Kirby said there was no imminent danger. Saturday, he was pressed to admit he was wrong. In the moment that I said it, based on what we knew at the time, uh, it was a true statement. And yes, two days later, things dramatically changed. I readily admit that. Uh, things move very, very quickly. There are thousands of Afghans and Americans trying to get to safety, many of them having immense difficulty. But just, you see the faces of these women and children. A feeling of relief for many. How, how do you feel making your way out of Afghanistan now? My uh, feel is too good. I'm too happy now. We visited ISIS prison in northern Syria in 2019, and what I suppose shocked me was how little remorse there was. At the time, the caliphate had just fallen. We were down in Bahaz, which is where the last ISIS pocket of resistance was, and we had just seen them you know, wiped out down there. And we moved up to this prison, and we just saw thousands upon thousands of fighters, foreign fighters as well as Syrian fighters, locked in these prisons with very, very few guards. None of them showed any remorse. None of them admitted that they were in ISIS. And they were just waiting for the time that they were going to be released because the judicial system in Syria or Iraq just wasn't capable and is not capable to this day of handling them. And so it was remarkable to me to realize that ISIS had planned for their own defeat, that they had spent the last year or so dispersing fighters back into the population. And it is one of the great worries uh, that lies ahead that ISIS is just there waiting to rise up again. We are hearing about an explosion that has just taken place at the airport in Kabul. This was the warning we were getting late last night and overnight. Um, and Admiral John Kirby sending out a tweet a moment ago. I'm just going to read it off the screen. Uh, we can confirm an explosion at the airport. Casualties are not clear at this time. We'll provide additional details when we can. There were um, concerns about a terror group known as ISIS-K. The K stands for Khorasan out of the region of northwestern Afghanistan, moving into this area here. And there's been a power struggle between the Taliban and between ISIS-K for some time. They are competing uh, parties to the um, Islamic terror world. And the worst possibility appears to have happened here, Dana, with an explosion outside the airport. Don't know how many Afghans were there. A gentleman by the name of Carl came on the phone. Co-anchor of America's Newsroom on the Fox News channel, Bill Hemmer. And we had never spoken to him before. We have never met him before. And what he described uh, at a moment uh, that, that I think was pure terror, he said, a five-year-old kid just died in my arms, a young girl. And then he said, I believe some Americans were victims too. And throughout the day, what I remember is the news only got worse. It went from a few injuries on behalf of Americans, to three dead, to four dead, 
to 10 dead. Eventually 12, 13 was the final number. And anytime something like this develops and you're watching your computer screen and you're trying to get bits of information from anyone you can that you trust, that day the news only got worse by the hour. The next day, when the reality set in, Carl came back on the air. I spoke with my family and they were just planning to see what's going to happen and everybody's texting me and say that What's your second plan? I don't have a second plan. If I cannot get out of the house... Yes, we do. And I cannot, we have six. We have six. And how am I going to have another We have six plans. Plan? We're going to get you out. But, but I know that I'm going to be left behind. I know that for sure. I know that I'm going to get killed. I, but the good thing is that I'm not going to die for a bad thing. I'm going to die for a good thing. What I did, I will never regret it because I have tried to help people. What you have now... 20 years after 9-11-2001 is this toxic stew yet again. It's the Taliban. It's ISIS, now known as ISIS-K. It's Al-Qaeda. And it's the Akani Network. Now, these four groups may not see eye to eye on everything, but they do see eye to eye on a lot. And that is they despise Western power and they despise the United States of America. What is the level of willingness on behalf of our political leaders now to go back into Afghanistan and take out a cell that we believe may be plotting to take out Americans over here? That is a question that will be at the front of our mind on 9-11-2021, 20 years later. They said that the uh, cancer is growing in my lungs. I have pancreatic cancer that's spread to my lungs. He risked his life at Ground Zero to help others. And now, Detective Bob Williamson is in the toughest battle he's ever faced. His only hope, a pill that costs $7,000 for just a 50-day supply. But his health plan won't pay for it all. They told me I can go on Medicare Part D, but then my family would have no... Uh, Firefighters, police, paramedics, and construction workers who were at ground zero in the days and weeks following the attacks later contracted a variety of illnesses, and some died. Now the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health will add dozens of types of cancers to the list of diseases that are covered by Zadroga Act compensation. And I had to retire in 2008 from lung damage, GERD, sleep apnea, a whole bunch of things, and... So drug at least has given me five years of medical taking care of that. I can never repay the debt to the first responders who came down and brought stability and humanity, not just to lower Manhattan, but to all of New York City and to the entire country. In a few moments, I will sign a bipartisan bill to fully reauthorize the nine elected 11 victims compensation fund so the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund is something you've all worked on very hard and the day has come. The September 11th Victim Compensation Fund was originally created in 2001. Special Master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, Rupa Bhattacharya. Within weeks of the events of 9-11 to provide financial compensation to those who were immediately impacted by the attacks. It was very limited in scope but it compensated over 5,000 individuals or their families who were injured or killed in the planes or in the buildings. This was the fund that was administered by Special Master Ken Feinberg, and it closed in 2004. By 2011, it had become clear that the effects of 9-11 were significantly more far-reaching and that many, many people continued to get sick as a result of exposure to toxins at all three attack sites, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the Shanksville site. As a result, Congress passed and the president signed into law the Zadroga Act, which provides medical treatment benefits and financial compensation to those suffering from health conditions related to their 9-11 exposure. Well, the World Trade Center Health Program's members responded to an epic disaster. Division Director and Associate Administrator of the World Trade Center Health Program, Dr. Dory Reisman. And as a result of that, they suffered mental and physical injury, illness, and premature death. About 
65,000 of our members are certified with at least one what we call World Trade Center related health condition. And the common conditions for that are chronic rhinosinusitis, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and many types of cancer, asthma, sleep apnea, post-traumatic stress disorder, and depression. It's not an all-inclusive list, but those are the most common. As of July 31st, 2021, the VCF has made awards to nearly 40,000 individuals, totaling over $8.8 billion. About 40% of our awards are to individuals with cancer as an eligible condition. And on a sobering note, we have compensated more individuals who have died as a result of a 9-11 related physical health condition than who actually passed away as a direct result of the September 11th attacks. Pretty much when we opened our doors back in 2011, we received a petition from nine members of the New York delegation. They were requesting our administrator to consider adding cancer to the list of World Trade Center related health conditions. And they used a recently published uh, study on cancer from the New York City Fire Department as their medical basis for that petition. After that, we had to review the scientific literature that was available on the topic at that point and wrote the program's first periodic review of scientific and medical evidence that was related to cancer for the World Trade Center Health Program. And because that wasn't conclusive, our program administrator requested a recommendation from our federal advisory committee. We call that the STAC, which stands for Scientific Technical Advisory Committee. And this committee has scientific experts on it and representatives of both the 9-11 responder and survivor communities. We gave them our first periodic review and the fire department study to assist in their deliberations. It took them a while. It took them like three different meetings in uh, 2011 and 2012 um, to make a recommendation about cancer. And they recommended that cancer as a topic be added based on the scientific findings by the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer and the National Toxicology Program that found that certain of the 9-11 agents or chemicals or dusts were reasonably likely to cause cancer. You know, the the 9-11 disaster was really unprecedented in our history, and there is so much that we still really don't know about the long-term health effects of these exposures. So we will be continuing to do research and health surveillance and continuing to monitor these individuals who are receiving health care from the program. My injuries consisted of being crushed. Uh, My whole left side was crushed. Former Port Authority police officer, Will Jimeno. Primarily my left leg. Um, So uh, today I have uh, large, large wounds. Uh, My leg doesn't function well because of nerve damage. I have to wear a brace, so I have drop foot. Um, And physically, that was the worst part. Uh, Mentally was the more challenging part, the post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, That was something that uh, I had to deal with and still deal with today. I learned to live with that. Uh, But for me, definitely the physical part was tough, but the mental part was even a more bigger challenge and continues to be a challenge today. The people who might be listening to this should really know that it's never too late to enroll in our program because the, the conditions I was talking about, some of them take years, decades to actually manifest into clinical illness. And it's important that people know that our enrollment is still open. So for those who might be eligible or even to find out if they're eligible, they should visit our website at www.cdc.gov forward slash WTC forward slash apply.html. Our brother, Louis Joey, Nagy the second. When you're at a restaurant or on your next flight or you're at a movie theater, just look around and say, hey, could I have done what Donald the passenger and crew members have done on flight 93 that day? Brother of United 93 passenger Louis Joseph Nackey, Ken Nackey. Would I have? Could I have? And I think most people will answer that question with a yes. And I think that's what the true story of Flight 93 is. The memorial itself, the the site, is 
unbelievably beautiful, the Pennsylvania countryside. It's, it's gorgeous and um, it's peaceful. Goddaughter of United 93 flight attendant Lorraine Grace Bay, Emily Schenkel. When I go and visit, I find it very um, calming and cathartic in a lot of ways. And then also, um, I have a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old. So I see as a parent, my children know quite a bit about that day. My daughter's name is Lorraine. We named her after um, Lorraine Bay. So they know a lot about that day. But a lot of kids in their age range now have not as much information about the day. So I think that to me is really the importance of it is just the history and learning and making sure that we all remember what happened that day and the sacrifices that the, the people made. As time goes on, my dad had the, the foresight to realize that this is going to be history book stuff, kind of. And, you know, making sure that Joey's memory and the 39 other passenger and crew members, that their, their stories are remembered. So that was my driving force and have been involved in that process till today. You know, I've met a lot of family members, love every one of them and respect every one of them. Uh, and, and, and the stories of their loved ones was important to me as much as Joey's was important to me. So you get, it's more like a family than it is a friendship. David W. Bernard. William H. Bernstein. David M. Beret. As far as your Port Authority Police Department, you know, we lost 37 officers. The most law enforcement officers lost in one day, uh, followed by our brothers and sisters at the NYPD with 23 and our brothers, uh, firefighters with 343, but countless civilians. Uh, what I want people to know that uh, as a police officer myself, that I became a cop to actually better our communities, make people safer, be there for people. Uh, you know, and I want people to remember that. I, under, I want people to understand that, you know, I love the quote by Edmund Burke that all the, that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And on 9-11 and since then, there are good men and women who step up to the plate. Robert D. Colon. Robert J. Carl. Jean Marie Collin. John Michael Collins. And I want people to understand that on September 11th, all the first responders that gave their lives were injured. Those that deal with uh, 9-11 uh, effects after uh, because of, you know, the recovery period are people who truly care about you and are there for you. You know, like I said, um, the first time I ever thought about my family uh, once I was down there was when I was about to die. Uh, and, uh, you know, I want people to understand that as first responders, we put our lives in the line. Uh, not to be heroes, but because we care. And I want people to understand that the Port Authority Police of New York and New Jersey care. They want to make sure all our facilities are safe, whether it be the airports, the bridges, the tunnels, the World Trade Center, the bus terminal, the path trains. They're working hard for you. So I want people to understand that when they see a first responder, uh, you know, to understand that these people really care about you. Michael Lawrence Hannon. Dana Ray Hannon. Tunnel to Tower CEO Frank Siller kicking off a 500-mile walk from Washington, D.C., culminating on September 11th at Ground Zero in remembrance of the 2,977 lives lost that day. Siller began his journey in the pouring rain by laying a wreath just feet away from where American Airlines Flight 77 struck the Pentagon. The 68-year-old will travel on foot first to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, home to the Flight 93 National Memorial. Then he'll continue through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel to the site where the World Trade Center once stood. It's the very same path his brother and off-duty firefighter, Stephen, took two decades ago, sacrificing his own life to save others in the name of freedom. A friend of my brother Stephen's uh, called me up one day because we were thinking of having a dinner or a golf outing or you know, a run or whatever uh, to help fund it. And he called me up, Billy Codd, and he said, uh, Frank, how about if we have a run? Founder and CEO of Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Frank Siller. And I said, oh, you know, Billy, I want to do something really unique. And he goes, no, no, not just a run. We'll run through the tunnel like Stephen did. I 
literally was overcome with emotion. Uh, and it was just the absolute perfect thing to do. So the first, for the first anniversary of 9-11 uh, in September that year, not on 9-11, because we'll never want to take away from 9-11 families. So we always do it the last Sunday in September. We had our first Tunnel to Towers run, and we've done, you know, this will be the 20th run that we've had coming up this September 26th. Specialist Craig S. Amundsen, United States Army. Petty Officer 3rd Class Melissa Rose Barnes, United States Navy. Uh, you know, the Pentagon was reconstructed, put back together in less than a year, and that memorial uh, was done a little over a year. Former Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Army, General Jack Keane. And it, 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 it is right in the area where the plane entered the building. It sits right there. And each, each person is who was killed in the Pentagon uh, that day or was uh, on the aircraft that hit the building is represented uh, by a by a bench artistically done with a, a, a small little individual pool for that bench and lights, etc. It's really quite a beautiful, quite a beautiful sight. In the shadow of what's now the tallest building in America, two cascading waterfalls sit in the footprints of the Twin Towers. The pools are lined with victims' names, and now 70 feet below where those iconic buildings once stood, sights, sounds, and artifacts from the day nearly 3,000 people died. They were who we are. And that's the first part of our mission, to honor and remember those killed in the attacks. The second part of our mission is to tell the history of that tragic day, what led up to it, and how our world continues to change in the aftermath. Spread out over 110,000 square feet, the museum features objects like the Survivor's Staircase, used by hundreds to escape the attack, cross-shaped steel found in the rubble, and fire trucks that responded to the disaster. The two towers of light have soared into the Manhattan sky since March 11th. A temporary memorial to the victims of September 11th, Tribute in Light, simulates the Twin Towers destroyed on that dark day. Those two beams of light at ground zero uh, represents uh, what the sacrifice and loss of 9-11. So once again, our, our first mission is to make sure we never forget. Uh, we read the names out loud last year, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. We were the foundation that read the names out loud in person, uh, right by ground zero because they played a recording, uh, the 9-11 Memorial. Um, we also put a one beam of light, blue light, at the Pentagon and one at Shanksville because, uh, and we're doing it again this year, because uh, they never had that beam of light before. And we, we once again want to make sure people never forget. You can see it for miles and miles and miles away. I think America is in a much different place than we were 20 years ago. I think that's obvious to everyone. Is terrorism still a threat? To what degree? How do we view it? We change the way we live, how we fly, how we go to sporting events, what we think about prior to, how we track our family members on our phones. It goes on and on. 9-11 changed us, and we still live that way today. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.